0: The Big Late Presents. Hello, I'm Sean McDonald. You're listening to Pleathered, and I'm joined by previous guest, Eamon Dean. Eamon was a member of Al-Qaeda before he defected to join MI6, where he continued to operate within Al-Qaeda as an undercover spy. If you haven't heard my interview with him, it's worth a listen, and you can also hear him on the fantastic Conflicted podcast, available in all the usual places. In this episode, we discuss Shamima Begum and her appeal to be able to return to the UK. Ask Eamon if he thinks de deradicalisation programmes work. And also ask Eamon some listeners questions. As always, if you enjoy this episode, feel free to share it on social media. This episode is brought to you by Debt Experts Don't Fret About Debt. If you're struggling with debt and you would like a free chat with an impartial advisor to discuss your options or to see how you can lower your monthly repayments towards debt, then visit don'tfretaboutdebt.net forward slash blethered. You can also listen to my episode with Don't Fret About Debt Senior Debt Advisor Tommy Gallagher, where we discuss taking back control of your debt and the various solutions available. Don't fret about debt. Offer all statutory debt solutions in Scotland, helping you to make an informed choice. So take the first step to dealing with your debt today. Free advice is also available from the Money Advice Service. If you enjoy this episode, feel free to share it. Cheers. Eamon Dean, welcome back on to
1: Well, thank you for having me again, Sean.
0: Always a pleasure, one of the most popular guests i 've had so f- so far there's, um, <laughs> you're there's been kind. a lot of questions <laughs> yeah there 's been a lot of questions and a lot of demand um, I thought this time we spoke obviously in detail about your life and, and experiences. Um, I thought this time it would be great to to talk about a few more current topics and ones that you 're obviously very or you have a high level of knowledge and expertise on um, so I suppose i 'll just jump straight into it, and what I wanted to start with was. Actually I'm going to change my mind Shamima Begum uh, Is is the first thing That I would like to discuss Obviously very relevant And very current um, For anyone who doesn't know uh, Which I doubt But you never know Shamima Begum um, Was She fled and She went to Syria To join ISIS When she was 15 Her and three other schoolgirls um, Yeah they went to join The Islamic State And she was quite recently notified that the decision had been taken by the Home Office to revoke her British citizenship on public security grounds after she was found in a camp in 2019. So she basically has won the right to appeal that. The Court of Appeal said... She had been denied a fair hearing because she couldn't make her case from the Syrian camp. And the Home Office has said that this decision was very disappointing, and that it would be applying for permission to appeal. Um, there's, a, a, I suppose, a few other topics to touch upon there, because then I suppose the, the the British government is responsible for bringing her back to to London to to face trial or to 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 make her case. Um... I mean, we'll just start with what What are your general thoughts, then we can get into some more detail. I mean, first of all, I suppose I will ask, do you believe that she has the the right to come back? Do you think that's the right thing or do you think she should be denied?
1: Um, it's one of the most difficult, um, you know, cases that one need to, co- which I have to comment on because, of course, um, the emotions surrounding this case is so strong on both sides of the argument. You know, there are those basically who just, you know, don't want to see her ever set foot on the, in this country again. And there are those basically who uh, take the view that she is uh, some sort of a victim of a grooming um, and that therefore, uh, and she's a British citizen, she was born here, and therefore mm. uh, she is, well, you know, the problem of the British uh, state. Um, so as with every case, as with every case, one needs to examine the details. Um, and for me, the Shamima Begum case, need to you need to be dispassionate when you are discussing the Shamima Begum case. Because, you know, remember, she, while she, yes, she left when she was 15 uh, with two other girls. There were three. They were known as the Bethnal Green girls. They left, um, I think, somewhere around February. Uh, of uh, 2015. Now, I want to remind the listener that just a month earlier, just a month earlier, um, ISIS uh, captured uh, a Jordanian uh, Air Force pilot uh, who was flying an F-16 Jordanian mission over uh, ISIS areas, and you know his plane experienced uh, technical uh, fault, and you know he basically. Um, uh, jumped the plane and, you know, he was captured in the ground. And what happened here is that Isis took him into a cage, filmed the whole thing for all the world to see, for all the world to see, basically. They burnt him alive in that cage. And so when people say that Shamima Begum, you know, a girl of 15, uh, was groomed, she didn't know what she was going into, I mean, for God's sake, a month earlier, they burnt a Jordanian pilot alive inside a cage for everyone to see. Um, And therefore, I question the judgment of those, basically, who are trying to defend her, saying that somehow she didn't know what she was getting into. No, Mm -hmm. she and her colleagues pretty much knew what what they were going into. Uh, That's the first thing that we need to understand. The second thing is that, Uh, you know, uh, the age of adult responsibility in Islam, the religion that she follows and I do also, is 15. So as a 15-year-old, you are adult and therefore you are supposed to be responsible for your actions. Yes, legally in the UK, she will count as a child at that time. But she became an adult while she was with ISIS and yet made no effort whatsoever to contact her family, her loved ones, her, the British authorities, to say, I regret what I've done, I want to leave. She remained loyal to the last square meter uh, of the um, infamous caliphate, of ISIS caliphate. And therefore, mm-hmm. um, if she was really re- remorseful If she really felt that it was the wrong thing to do, she would have done this. She would have actually contacted her family, uh, anyone else, her friends, anyone she could trust to signal that she regrets completely being there. But there is no evidence of any digital transmission from her side to her family, to anyone, or even written uh, or otherwise stating that she regretted uh, being there. It's just only because her side lost um, and she ended up in a camp, uh, in, a, in a prisoner's camp run by the Kurdish uh, forces. The Kurdish people, of course, were one of the people that suffered you know, uh, deeply at the hands of ISIS um, in the years of 2014 all the way until 2018. Now, um, for people who say that she's our problem, Um, And she's British, and she should come here and face justice. As I have said on the BBC just more than 19 months ago, and I repeat it again, the British justice system is ill-equipped to deal with crimes that have taken place somewhere else. So if someone leaves this country, go to a lawless war zone like uh, Syria, Afghanistan, Somalia commit a crime, then come back, what will happen is that even if they are charged in this country under that crime, because there are no proper authorities where they committed that crime, the problem is how do you forensically go about proving that they have committed that crime? How do you interview witnesses? How do you secure the crime scene if you even know where it is, if you can't even reach it? Um, All this nonsense about yes, we can bring her and she can face justice here. She won't face not ju- no justice. She will face no justice here. She will face you know a nonsense you know uh, court, which will struggle even to bring a solid case against her because prove that I was um, an active member of ISIS and not just a ISIS housewife who was there against her will. She can say whatever she wants about being groomed, trafficked. And being there against her, well, although, you know, there are reports, solid reports, basically, of her being a member of Al-Khansa Brigade, which is the, um, uh, you know, the female enforcers of public morality among ISIS. They relied a lot on uh, European, uh, you know, uh, Muslims in particular to enforce it. So she would have been a prime candidate for that. Uh, you know, position to be basically within the religious beliefs, mm-hmm. Let's put it this way: of ISIS, um, all the evidence is stacked up against her that she did not have any remorse or the will even to leave. And then, throughout this process, some people say, "Well, she lost three children." I mean, how could you even basically go into a war zone, marry someone basically who is whose life expectancy is, you know, measured in days rather than years and months? because, of course, ISIS fighters are uh, notorious for being um, foolish in the battlefields to the point, basically, where they get themselves killed uh, needlessly and and unnecessarily. So you marry someone, you know, basically, that your child will be orphaned uh, by either you know, uh, your husband dying or in in the fight or you dying in an airstrike, you bring another child to this life, you know, (laughs) in a war zone for God's sake, for God's sake, just like, you think about it in a war zone, uh, getting pregnant. I mean, not only once or twice, but three times. Uh, It begs the question of whether basically, you know, they were exercising, uh, you know, good judgment here. All of these events, you know, yet some people insist, no, no, She can come back. Now, I will come to the legal issue here. If I, you know, as a British citizen, travel outside of uh, the UK, and let's say I fly into New York or into Brazil or into Ghana or Senegal or Philippines, and I commit a crime there, I'm not the UK's problem. I am the Mm -hmm. problem of the authority of the jurisdiction where the crime was committed. So she committed her crimes on Syrian and possibly Iraqi soil. Therefore, it's the matter for the Syrian authorities or the author- the temporary authorities of the place where she is in, which is the, uh, the Ruhaava, uh, you know, which is the Kurdish uh, autonomous region, you know, which is self-declared you know, by the Kurds. So because currently where she lived uh, in the past where she was active with ISIS, all of these areas are under the control of the Kurdish uh, Rojava authorities. And therefore, you know, they are entitled to try her, but they don't want to. They just want to, you know, send her back or give mm-hmm. her up somewhere. So the next place where she committed the crime will be Turkey. Because under Turkish law, it is a crime, even though they turn a blind eye completely at the time. Uh, you know, that's another matter altogether. <laughs> but <laughs> Under the Turkish law, it's a crime basically to use the Turkish, um, I would say, uh, jurisdiction to pass into a terror uh, zone and to join a terror organization. It's just illegal. Uh, so if the Turks basically spot her entering into Turkey from Syria, trying to make her way back to the UK, they could easily arrest her uh, you know, for having already um, broken the law in Turkey. Now. Um, now that I have explained why you know she is well, an adult, you know under Islamic rules, and now she is adult, yeah. and during her adult years of eighteen and nineteen, she did not signal in any way, shape, or form to her family, to her loved ones, to anyone, or the authorities, anyone uh, that you know she is regretting her decision. She wants to come back. She also uh, made comments after. Um, Uh, you know, being discovered in that camp where she justified the Manchester Arena bombing uh, as a justifiable retaliation for, you know, the coalition attacks against ISIS, even though the coalition attacks against ISIS were the result of ISIS executing, you know, uh, Westerners and uh, plotting terror attacks against uh, Europe. So... And the last argument here is the fact that she is entitled, according to the Bangladeshi constitution, to a Bangladeshi citizenship. If you have a parent, especially a father, who is Bangladeshi, and by the way, her father lives in Bangladesh and is a citizen of that country, and you still haven't reached the age of 21, you could apply. So, you know, by law, she is not as stateless as some, mm-hmm. you know, basically, you know, of her... I would say sympathizers basically are arguing that she is somehow, um, you know, a UK citizen purely and that that she has no access to her uh, Bangladeshi citizenship. The answer is yes, she does. If she applies, uh, she will get it, although the Bangladeshi uh, government cleverly basically said, oh, no, 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 she's entitled, even though basically... Um, you know, that she is entitled under the uh, Bangladeshi constitution in regard to her being under 21, she can apply. Her father is not just only a Bangladeshi citizen, but still living there uh, in Mm -hmm. Bangladesh. All of this means basically that first, the British government was within their right. I'm not saying it was the right thing or the wrong thing. I'm saying the British government were within their rights. Two, strip her of her citizenship based on the fact that those who went to fight for terror organizations and they are dual nationals, which means either by default, which means they have access to that nationality or already carrying that passport regardless, if they are dual nationals, then they the British citizenship is stripped um, because it is conducive to the public good that they mm-hmm. no longer have the access uh, back to this country. Now, many people saying this is a violation of their human rights, but the question is no one is being made stateless and it isn't targeting only uh, so-called brown, you know, and um, black folk. I mean, basically, you know, Jack Letts is a white British Canadian and the British government uh, stripped him of his nationality. He is rotting there in... Um, and, you know, a a Kurdish jail for ISIS members. Um, And he's white and no one basically, even his family, his parents were, you know, basically uh, sentenced to jail uh, because they sent him money. Uh, So just to show basically that it's not a question of race, um, you know, or religion. The question is, you join a terror organization abroad, you have access to other citizenship, then you lose your in you know, your British one, and I think uh, this is one of the ways in which to deter would be um, in a future um, terrorists, you know, and make them think not only twice, maybe ten times, before they try and commit this kind of uh, act. I think there is something like hundred and fifty people who's been uh, stripped of their British citizenship, um, who went abroad to fight for ISIS or Al Qaeda. Uh, or Shabab in Somalia and other places, or Boko Haram in Nigeria. The as for I will sorry for the long answer, but basically I will just conclude conclude by saying that she shouldn't come back here. Uh, at least initially, I would suggest that she should be. You know, first of all, we shouldn't risk anyone's life to bring her out of that camp because sending British officials. Um, across the border into Syria, they could be kidnapped or killed. So the first thing is that no risking anyone's life for her. That's the first thing. Second thing is that once she uh, passed into into Turkish territory on her own, uh, remember that she's been stripped of her citizenship. It hasn't been restored yet. So the British embassy cannot assist her uh, with a new passport because her passport would have been expired by now. So on Mm. what document can she fly back? So, you know, if she go to the British government or the British, sorry, the British embassy in uh, Ankara uh, or the consulate in Istanbul, they will say, sorry, you are not recognized as a British citizen. Still not yet because the court did not restore your citizenship. The court just merely said you have the right to be in the UK to be heard, but you don't have any valid travel document. So... She will either have to apply for a Bangladeshi passport and a UK visa to come, so her uh, case can be heard, or, or um, she can be, you know, given a waiver uh, by the Secretary of State, which means it is the Home Office uh, minister, mm-hmm. or you know, basically, um, to uh, fly to the UK. But that is far-fetched because how could she leave? Because the Turkish immigration authorities will be asking, you know, do you have any proof that you did not violate Turkish visas for, you know, for five years, basically? Yeah. Because it says you entered, but you did not exit. Uh, Because when they go from, when they enter Turkey, they actually go into Syria unofficially. And as a result, because they are doing it unofficially, you you end up with a situation where they appear in the immigration system in Turkey as if they never left Turkey. So Mm -hmm, for five years, there is no proof that she never left Turkey and therefore she will have to pay hefty fines just to leave. Um, Let alone she might even face prison time in Turkey for violating the Turkish uh, visa. Most likely she will just pay fines, hefty fines basically, get a ban from entering Turkey, you know, for 10 years or something like that. And then, uh, you know, but then how can she leave? And also comes another hurdle, which is which commercial airline with uh, very tolerant passengers, who would tolerate (laughs) her being on the flight with them? Yeah. No one. So, which means that there has to be a charter flight to take her from Turkey back to here, which will cost something like 50 or... Seventy-five thousand yeah. uh, pounds minimum, and who will pay that? You know, uh, you know, if if there is any suggestion, even that the taxpayer should do it, basically, I will go bananas. I mean, I, I mean, mm-hmm. basically, I will say, just set up, a, a you know, a fund me crowd or whatever, you know, just set up <laughs> a fund me page, and let you know her sympathizers basically pay for that flight to bring her back. But there should be no, first of all, there should be no British officials risking their lives for her. There should be no, uh, you know, leniency over which airline she could board, um, you know, and no and no question of her being brought by a uh, charter flight on the taxpayer's expense. She should be brought here with by her own family and supporters' expense, as simple as that. Um, and the reason is, and why am I very, being very harsh here? I'm not heartless. I believe in second chances. For God's sake, I am mm-hmm. a product of a second chance. But for all the reasons I listed, which is no remorse, uh, loyal to the last square meter, and the fact that, you know, basically that she, you know, justified another terror attack while she was trying to come here, which is the uh, Manchester Arena bombing. And the fact, Mm -hmm. and the fact, you know, that if we allow her to come in, and restore her nationality, then 150 terrorists outside the UK will be looking and waiting for this legal precedent to be set so they can all line up to come back again against the will of the British government and the British people in large. So that's all I have to say on this subject.
0: So, what you're saying is you're undecided. I'm joking. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. So, I mean, it's, it's very, it's obviously very clear where you stand. Um, the way in which I've come to, I, I'm not going to speak in any much, uh, you know, anywhere near as much detail um, or as, as knowledgeable um, or as eloquently as you have. But I do have my own thoughts. And the way that I've considered it is I've considered legality, morality the logistics of it and public safety and interest. And I think it's important for me because obviously for you, you have a vested interest. You've obviously, as you say, you're a product of a second chance. So, you know, your opinion is very relevant and, excuse me, is very valid as someone who's been both part of Al-Qaeda and the British security services and other things that you perhaps haven't um, declared for for whatever reason. (laughs) But in in terms of legality, so I kind of sat on the fence a little bit because I thought, the the human instinct in me is like no 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 you can't come back because you pose too much of a threat but then I thought okay in the same way that I'm perhaps opposed to capital punishment even though I'm I'm sickened and appalled when I hear about someone who's harmed a child for example the human instinct in me is kill them you know let them have the worst punishment possible but then I think if I really want to see Society upheld or you know the systems in which we operate and to to be continuous And sometimes you need to swallow the pill and you have to go by the rules because you can't have it to suit your personal preference at all times but then I have considered the morality of and it is is the the interests of one person who has shown you know grave disregard and severe disregard for, for human life Um obviously being part of part of ISIS and what she's been involved in and certain other things that we can't talk about on here because they're maybe subject to, to court case. But things that I think if people knew, they would be horrified. And I think their their opinions would change um, all I'll say on, on, on that part. Um, but then I think, you know, should we then take responsibility? And you know, I know that you said it was committed on foreign soil. That it actually falls under the the jurisdiction of war crimes, that perhaps she should be tried by the United Nations and in a, you know um a, a an impartial or a sort of neutral territory. I'm kind of considering all of these things, but I I think based on everything that you've said and also to take into consideration the logistics, the fact that you know we can't have British officials travelling over there because it's completely unsafe. She can't be travelling domestically because I don't imagine someone coming back from a two-week all-inclusive holiday in Turkey is going to be too happy if she's on the jet 2 or the Ryanair flight back. Uh, and the fact that the public purse shouldn't be paying to, to go and, chart, you know, as you say, to charter a flight out of there. Um, the, the sort of last thing I'll say on it is that I have been deeply frustrated by the public discourse that I've seen on it. I've seen people who, who I have very similar opinions with on on multiple subjects and topics um and you would say are left you know, we're we're all left leaning. But I did see someone say it has to be remembered that Shemaima Begum was just a child when she was taken over to, to Syria and they posted a little love heart beside it, and I thought, like, come on, <laughs> come on. I mean, there's there's towing the party line, you know, there's taking the, the sort of left-leaning stance, but I think it's very irresponsible and it's very, very dangerous if we don't look at the details, details sorry, and the minutiae and the sort of forensics of of a situation. And we have to take these things on a case-by-case basis because you very quickly explained why she wasn't a vulnerable teenager who was taken. She went of her own volition, even though she knew what she was going to. And as you said, until the last square metre, she was there until she had nowhere to go. And, you know, then she was kind of hoping to come back. Um, having, you know, considered everything that you said, because obviously we had this conversation last week, other research that I've done, I wouldn't be letting her back and... and um you know, people might hear that. I, I imagine there's people who hear me say that sentence and they will just absolutely discount and ignore the last 23 minutes of conversation <laughs> and explanation. They might like follow you
1: on Twitter and they might uh, block oh, you. And...
0: No, <laughs> oh, no, don't do that. Not on the website. Not, you know, um, don't punish me that way. Um, but I just feel that the, you know, people could say it's in violation or contradiction of the UN Human Rights Charter, but I think when you're committing... I mean let's call it what they are fucking war crimes. Yes. You're committing war, war crimes and I think that you to a degree relinquish a portion of those rights. Um I, I don't think, you know, you, you no longer cease to become a human, but I don't think you have the ultimate bargaining power because you've proved you you, you know you've proven beyond any reasonable doubt that you are a threat to to the entirety of the nation. Um And now I suppose the next point then that I'd like to take this on to is that you said fairly recently in a newspaper interview interview, that you felt one of the biggest threats to British national security was the prospect of so-called lone wolf attacks. Now, we've seen multiple, um, and I think it's important to name them. So in December 20... I mean, I could take my pick, but very recently, in December 2019, Usman Khan, aged 28, had been released from jail on licence. Uh, in 2018, so just a year before, and he was halfway through a 16-year sentence for terrorism offences. Now, it's also important to name victims because often they become statistics, they just become two people. But this was Jack Merritt and Saskia Jones. These were two, I believe, Cambridge or Oxbridge University graduates. They were aged only 25 and 23 their lives were extinguished and their families will continue to live with a life sentence and then in February 2020 so this year we saw the Streatham High Street attack near the attacker who had been released from prison at the end of January after serving half of his three-year sentence and there was three people injured and one with severely um, life-threatening injuries so we also have to take that into account don't we what is to say that that Shamima Begum wouldn't, you know, serve a one-year sentence um, or a, half of a, a two-year sentence, sorry, for um, terror offences, and then, you know, commit an attack. Because I think you said the crux of this point is that de-radicalisation doesn't work unless the individual um, has a severe inclination. To, to denounce what they once believed in and to accept that they were wrong. I mean, what are your thoughts on the prospects of de-radicalisation? Let's just say that Shamima Begum uh, does win her, her appeal to come back. Can she ever be fully de-radicalised or is she just beyond the pale?
1: I think that because of the notoriety and uh, the widespread nature you know, of the case, how you know public this case has become, the likelihood of her having a normal life in the UK is almost zero. Uh, Mm -hmm. She will never have a normal life in the UK. She will come back. Um, Unless if she hides in in isolation for the rest of her life in the UK, I don't see her being readmitted back into society by the society itself. Because Mm. even among her own Bengali uh, Muslim community in uh, East London, everyone will be afraid of mixing with her. Families will tell their daughters, you know, do not mix with her whatsoever. We don't want any trouble. Yeah. And you'll end up in a situation where she will have no friends. She will end up being, you know, confronted, you know, in the shops, in the streets, uh, spat on, called names. Um, and I guarantee you within a year, she will snap. Mm-hmm. Because that's no life. And yeah. the idea that, you know, that, you know, even even if 99.9% of the society were to ignore her and only very minute minority would be targeting her uh, with verbal abuse, possibly even worse, possibly physical abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, it will be only a matter of time before she relapse and she decide that better to die with dignity than to live with such humiliation. Mm-hmm. That's my fear. Um, and this is why I believe that uh, the idea of rehabilitating her in particular, you know, is just nonsense. It's not going to work. And that's why, you know, the uh, the best solution for everyone is either she go back. We have to go back. You know, she never was there eh, to begin with. But if she would um, live in her native Bangladesh, um, at least she can be lost in the crowd. There, they don't they yeah. didn't follow this as much as people here. She will be lost in the crowds. Um, I mean, that's the best uh, solution for her to have a normal life. And then, when the you know, when when she is thirty or forty, when she is you know, when her uh, facial features basically changes enough, you know, and for the public to uh, forget her face, you know, she just make it quietly back to the UK if she still desire to, and if she you know, wins her right uh, to be uh, a British yes. citizen. But that is my uh, worry, is that it's not going to work. Um, as for the concept of deradicalization as a whole, as the December attack, uh, in December 2019 attack by Osman Khan, uh, you know, proved a point, even though I was never ever, you know, uh, hoping for it to be proved, uh, yeah. that I made years ago, that... Uh, there is a lot of naivety involved on the part of the academics uh, when it comes to trying to persuade these people to renounce violence. Um, they think basically that these people think on the same level as rational, um, you know, cynical individuals uh, in the West, They know, basically who apply academic cynicism Uh, To whatever basically they learn. Um, However, in the case of Osman Khan and everyone, every other Osman Khan, I would say, sorry. However, in the case of Osman Khan and every other Osman Khan, these people do not think on the same wavelength uh, uh, as these academics do. And the problem is, you end up in a situation where there is a discussion between the deaf and the blind. Um, it's just unintelligible, you know, they can't, you know, make headway. So, you know, the blind can't see you make, you know, sign language, and the deaf can't hear what the blind is saying. And that's exactly the situation as far as de-radicalization in the UK and Europe generally uh, is happening. Because, You know, just the ultimate failure of it, despite the best intentions by these two, you know, uh, know, wonderful academics who lost their lives. But despite their best intention, he ended up making an example of them. And basically, he killed them in the Mm -hmm. session in a design to help him uh, renounce violence. Is your mattress making noises it never used to? Or is it sagging, causing you to then it's time to get a new one. Get the best sleep at the best value with a Nectar mattress. Prices start at just $499 and you get $399 in accessories thrown in, a 365-night home trial and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com. He wasn't doing it randomly. He knew exactly what he was doing. He wanted to send a message that... You don't get us, you don't understand us, and you will never will. And actually, Mm -hmm. I sort of agree with him that, you know, trying to, you know, appeal to their humanity, to their repressed, buried humanity is not going to work. Remember that these people always, um, when they are radicalized, um, they are radicalized on the spiritual level where they feel that they have ascended Spiritually above everyone else, to yeah. the point where they see everyone else below them as animals. I'm not kidding, seriously, they see them as cattle breeding, eating, having no purpose in life, you know they are you know d- you know divorced and disconnected from their Lord and creator um they are no worthy of even being called humans, they are just cattle, they are just pigs that you know should be led to the slaughter that's it that's how they see you know, others, because they feel that they have ascended uh, spiritually way above everyone else. Uh, it is a superiority complex, you know, that is, that is well known that jihadists suffer from. Um, and these violent extremists will never, you know, basically, you know, listen to someone they regard as misguided pig, as they, you know, call them, Mm-hmm. You know, and basically, you know, be willing to receive because the wavelength, again, is not compatible. Again, it's the conversation of the deaf and the blind. It's going nowhere. And that is why, you know, the, uh, you know one of the best programs, actually, uh, in terms of, they don't call it de-radicalization. Uh, they call it disengagement from violence. They mm. are not appealing for them to become liberal Democrats Uh, You know, who will be, you know, next week basically waving the rainbow flags, you know, in a rally somewhere. (laughs) No, they won't, you know, but they appeal to their sense of spiritual sacredness of human lives and that they appeal, you know, to them in a way that sow the seeds of doubt in their minds. It's not about convincing them, it's about confusing them. It is to make them feel less certain about the righteousness of their cause, that if they kill and be killed, that they will not be certain they will end up in the afterlife, in the blissful heavenly afterlife that they were always seeking. No, it's mm-hmm. going to be, there is a possibility. There is the 2, 3, 4, percent possibility. It might be the dark, fiery dungeons of hell instead of, you know, basically the heaven they were promised. It's the seeds of doubt that we need to instill in their minds, and unfortunately, these seeds of doubt, you know, are not possessed by Western academics. They are actually possessed by Muslim security practitioners in places like Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Egypt, uh, Iraq, and elsewhere. Because that is where, especially in places like Saudi Arabia and Egypt, that is where the most successful. You know, uh, counter-terrorism rehabilitation programs existed. For example, the Saudi uh, program, uh, working with thousands upon thousands of these people, succeeded in rehab. You know, succeeded in having people who were rehabilitated released back to society, with a reoffending, you know, uh, rate of only 20%. By the way, 20% might sound high, but actually, this is extremely low in the mm-hmm. world of. Terrorism rehabilitation, and the reason why? Because the Saudis understand the language, the wavelength, and the uh, spirituality of these people, and how it's been messed up. So they have the tools to, you know, uh, tighten the screws, you know, of these yeah, uh, yeah. people's <clears throat> minds um, and bring them back from the brink, uh, from the brink of, um, you know, uh, self destruction. But the problem in the West is that. And I have been, you know, talking to many people in, uh, you know, in security departments in uh, places like the UK and other European countries that shall remain nameless. And I remember in one European country when I was saying that the only way you can, you know, reach out to, you know, uh, just achieve the shift, uh, you know, from being uh, hell bent on violence to actually disengaging from violence is the use. of of Islamic theology and spirituality, because that's the language they understand. Immediately, I remember the analyst who was, you know, talking in front of me, basically, just, you know, closed her notebook, and she said to me, sorry, we are not allowed to talk about religion here. And I was just looking at her, stunned. She said, no, no, it's our government's policy that everything we pursue must be secular and non-religious whether it is Jewish, Christian or Muslim or whatever basically we cannot apply something that is religious i said okay no problem at all then you are applying or giving someone who is suffering from malaria you are giving them basically cold medicine and that's it mm-hmm. you know you might basically relieve some of the symptoms but the disease is there it's going to you know continue to fester and the idea that somehow you do you know you you, you have to understand that when people make vaccinations against diseases, they use a strain from the same disease, yeah. you know. So if the problem, if the source of problem is Islam, then the cure is, well, you know, Islam. <laughs> yeah, so, mate. Yeah, so, and, you know, and I have, as I have explained before, basically, I mean... Uh These people have lost their way because we have a crisis in islam i'm the first one to admit it as a devout Muslim myself that we mm-hmm. have crisis you know in the past sixty years we've been having one intellectual and theological and ideological crisis after another um you know, but these are our people. we know how to bring them back uh you know you know at least at least disengage them from violence. Not convince them to become liberal democrats, which will never happen.
0: Yeah, it's never going to take place. That makes complete sense, and I'm so glad that you gave it that explanation about you know the way in which to understand the level of thinking, the plane in which they're on, um, and obviously speaking about to cure someone of a certain disease, you actually have to take a strain of that disease to you know to get them round to a, a different way of thinking. Um, and while on the subject of disease, obviously. I'm so bored of the word coronavirus. I'm so bored of the word COVID. <laughs> However, I feel that this is possibly a conversation that people won't have heard um, with regards to to the global pandemic. Has Has the coronavirus had an impact on national security operations and logistics? And also, on the other side, has it had has it had an impact on the operations of no Islamic fundamentalists who are, are pursuing their ends through through violence and and similar means.
1: Well, it's interesting you say that. I mean, um, as an observer, I've noticed basically that uh, you know COVID nineteen um, put you know the activities of terrorists generally around the world on hold, um, and the reason for that is because. Um, it, Mass gatherings, you know, are what terrorists look for. And if they're not there, you you deny them of, you know, a potential target. So no pubs, no cinemas, no clubs, um, you know, um, uh, not enough pedestrians to go and attack um, with cars or, you know, to do the stabbing. Although uh, Mm -hmm. at some point, basically, when there were the uh, Black Lives Matter uh, protests basically happening, um, in the UK, in Reading, basically, there was a terror attack uh, by an individual who took advantage of the fact that there was yeah. um, uh, some exception, you know, to the uh, you know, to the lockdown and that people basically decided to go and protest. And he thought that this is it. This is my chance. I've been bored at home you know, doing nothing, that's it. This is my yeah. uh, chance to target someone because people going for a protest. Um, and so he uh, took advantage of that and uh, went and um, uh, did what he did. Um, mm. So, but in general, that, de- you know, denying them, um, you know, mass gatherings, you know, basically meant that they will be just like everyone else, furloughed terrorists.
0: <laughs> yeah. Has that, so I suppose then that would just go for the same way that the security services must be operating and monitoring in in different ways or maybe turning their attentions to, to, I don't know, different methods of observation of people. Because you did mention the last time we spoke that what they tend to do is like, you say, rattle the cage of someone, you know, they know, they tend to know what people are up to. So they might pull them over for a speeding offence and say, oh, by the way, we know what you're planning. We are watching you to kind of put the frighteners up. them, I suppose it gives them a a chance to to be watching more closely if there's less action and more observation.
1: I mean, uh, one of the things I think, uh, you know, many of the listeners will always be confused about is that, uh, you know, generally after every... Or almost after every uh, terror attack in this country, uh, you end up with this unfortunate sentence coming saying, uh, you know, the attacker was known to the authorities. Mm. Um, And uh, this is one of the biggest uh, problems that the authorities basically have here is that they know someone having an intention, but you can't prosecute people based on intention because you know about the intention through, uh, you know, electronic interception. Uh, You know, the GCHQ method of mm-hmm. intercepting phone calls and emails and texts and, um, you know, uh, app communications. So they know that someone is intending to do something, but they don't have the means to arrest them because basically he intends to use a kitchen knife. So it's like, how you know, it's like what? Arrest him for possession, you know, of a kitchen knife. Um, so you end up in a situation where, You know, he's basically out shopping and he is not wearing a mask. So suddenly someone who is a policeman, well, he's not an ordinary policeman. He is possibly from SO-15 or uh, from the security services. He will just basically approach him and say, put on the mask. I'm giving you a fine, you know, give me your name, address, whatever. And then he will say, by the way, uh, you know, we know what you're up to. We know what you're, you know, where, where, where you're planning to target. Cut it out. Stay home. You know, stay out of trouble, or mm. if you leave home with the intention of doing something, we will shoot you there and then. So, <laughs> you know, so so basically, that that's one of the ways, you know, to persuade people not yeah. to do it. Um, that okay, you know, the element of surprise is gone. Um, mm-hmm. Therefore, what's the point? You know, there is no point here. But then, the problem is that person will be enjoying the fact that for the next year or two, he will be costing the UK government almost £100,000 a year just to monitor him
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, and to make sure basically that he is not intending uh, or trying to renew his intention uh, to carry out an attack. And that is one of the most difficult things, is that you have 23,000 people. Some people say basically the number is up to 42,000 right now, uh, people who are on the radar of the security authorities um and that is massive that is absolutely massive number uh, of radical or radicalized people um you know from the from within the muslim community in the uk uh, who hate the country enough to consider or to even entertaining the idea to consider carrying out an attack um against this country um it's a tragic um uh, situation we find ourselves in and yeah. the security services, I mean, just to give you an idea, basically, you know, how, you know not many people know, but you know, the number of people who work for MI5 are 3,000. I mean, mm. just take this into account. You know, you're talking about 3,000 people. They have to monitor, what, 42,000 people. Yeah, um, that's
0: insane.
1: Yeah, and of course, basically, they have to have help from local authorities and local police, uh, but still... You know, if you take all the counter terrorism, you know, people working in the country basically, what you know, you know, the entire number won't reach 42,000 people. Um, and they have to focus on other things, they have to focus on you know, uh, Russian, you know, uh, espionage, they have to, uh, you know, consider Chinese espionage, they have to consider, you know, a uh, renewed threat from Republican loyalists in Northern Ireland. I mean, there are plenty of other threats, they have to focus on organized crime, you know, money laundering by other terrorist organizations. So how do you focus, you know, on uh, 42,000 potential terrorists in the country so the only way you do it basically is by keeping them on their toes all the time and also by again coming back to Shamima Begum Begum issue by making it absolutely clear that if you travel abroad to do something or to train or uh, you know to get uh, experience or to fight with other terrorist groups you know you will lose the right to come back Um, and if you do it here Well, let's hope, like, you know, I mean, with the new sentencing powers, basically, that there would be longer, much longer sentences uh, for terrorism offences.
0: Yeah, I would say that there has to be, as said previously, we have to take things on a case-by-case basis, and it's quite dangerous to to make sweeping, generalising statements when talking about how you deal with this thing, these types of things, but... I would say we have to really not we as if I have anything to do with the judiciary the home office or the security services but just in general you do as, you, you are know, a
1: citizen you are a concerned I, citizen you do you have everything. I every suppose
0: life. yeah I suppose and I think we should just be hammering them with you know if it, if it means you're losing your citizenship because you're putting you know 60 million people at risk then I'm afraid that's just how it's going to have to be because you knew what was happening you knew, you knew the score you knew the rules you knew the the um you knew the potential, you know, outcomes before you before you set off. Um, on a sort of lighter note, just as we round up, um, we've got had some listeners have have given some questions, so I'll try and get through a few of them because I would love to know the answer to some. They're basically questions <laughs> I already have, which shows that um, these listeners have got good good taste and high intelligence. But we'll see. So <laughs> the first one is from Rory McLean, uh, and the first thing he's asked is why did you choose scotland as the place to set up home
1: well i mean you know why not i mean i mean exactly why not (laughs) why not i mean first of all it's you know it's an incredibly beautiful country i am someone who is you know a nature freak um I do love basically living somewhere where, you know, know, the mountains and the lakes and the rivers and the waterfalls are accessible, uh, where I can, you know, stand on top of a mountain and see the ocean uh, endless. Um, And just I feel that there is something deeply uh, spiritually beautiful about, you know, the highlands and um, you know, and also, also about the Scottish people themselves, I mean basically the friendliness the you know the the warm uh, welcome and the warm nature uh, you know um, it's it's just uh overwhelming
0: the uh, I would also like to point out to the person listening that you have seen easily, and i 'm not even exaggerating about ninety five percent more of scotland than i have like i haven't actually (laughs) because i think my in my defense because i'm well i would say i'm fairly well traveled um but whenever i was living here or even now my first instinct is always to get out like to go somewhere (laughs) else like never to go up north which i now that i'm getting older i appreciate scotland more um, but you, you've you've been everywhere, like no matter where I named. Well, have you been here? Yep. Have you been <laughs> here? Yep. Like, you've been everywhere, so fair play because you you have uh, seen so much of the country. Um, really there are also, many
1: places in this. You know, uh, there are many places in Scotland where I've visited several times. It's just because I can't get enough of it, and you yeah. never get bored of it.
0: Do you have Do you have a favorite, or if you could choose, maybe your top two?
1: I love always to drive from Inverness on the A82 all the way to Malague and then take the ferry into the Isle of Skye and just basically get lost there. As simple as that. Mm-hmm. That's you know and then whenever I can just take the ferry to Lewis um you know it's just I love the ocean, I love the islands, I love the You know, and one of my, you know, even I mentioned in the book, one of my serene, beautiful places, even though it was a scene of a slaughter, but um, is the Isle of Iona, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, the monastery and the nunnery there basically where, Mm -hmm. you know, St. Columba, uh, you know, lived. And somehow I find, you know, uh, the Isle of Iona to be a source of peace, um, tranquility uh, and, you know. uh, for deep reflection. Um, yeah. I mean, basically, I might be a Muslim, but I have a deep, uh, you know, respect for, you know, Christian monk and for the Christian uh, faith. Mm-hmm. So that's why, like, now, you know, it's uh, it, it's it, it's it's just I can't describe, you know, what Iona have an effect on me. <laughs> why? Mm-hmm. But I love the Isle of Iona, even though it's tiny next to the Isle yeah. of Mal, but yeah. <laughs>
0: That was uh, that was a reference to your book there, Eamon Dean, uh, Nine Lives, My Time as Al- uh, the West's top spy inside Al-Qaeda, which is available. I've got it in, on audiobook, on Audible, which I would recommend. Uh, To the person listening, it's a very interesting listen. Or if you prefer the books, then you can get it everywhere that you would get your books as well. Um, Ruri has also got a follow-up question, which I thought was quite interesting. Do you still have any lingering concerns that you're still in danger from the fatwa that was put against you? Or has that dissipated?
1: Um, I am under no illusion that there are people out there, basically, that if they encounter me, they would basically take a foolish action. But, you know, I thank God a million times that I am not the target of pursuit. I'm just a target of opportunity. It means basically that if I'm encountered, um, then if possible, you know, uh, take him out. You know, that's uh, what the fatwa says. Um, But, you know, the fact of the matter is that, you know, finding me is not going to be easy because. You know, the moment, you know, you try to find out my address, someone will come and knock on your door and say, what the hell are you doing? Oh, and right, why are you okay, wow. So I'm warning well, <laughs> so well. everyone, don't try to find my address, please.
0: Because <laughs> you'll, you'll get a knock at the door by two guys in dark suits and sunglasses.
1: Exactly. it w- You know, immediately, like, you know, basically, it will log somewhere, you know, with someone, whether here or across the pond in the Atlantic, because basically, you know, I don't want to go into details about how these things are monitored, but at some point, basically, if someone is trying to put, well, Eamon Dean, home address, where does he live? Forget it, basically. Like, you know, it will log immediately and your IP address and (laughs) even if you hide behind a VPN, it will still basically alert me to the fact that someone is trying to look.
0: Amazing. I'm so glad that Ruri asked that question. Um Laura Hepburn has asked is it common for islamic militants to become disillusioned with their cause once they realize what they've gotten themselves into or are you an extreme exception to to the general rule
1: Um I would say maybe one out of every 200 you know so it's like less than 1% even um do that but uh, there is another breed where What they do is that instead of leaving and aiding the authorities, what they do is that they leave and then they go back to normal life as if nothing happened. Uh, They just switch off the violence part and they go back because they feel disillusioned. Uh, They don't want to be part of it anymore, but they do it quietly. Why? Because, you know, they were not significant enough to be on the radar of the authorities uh, mm-hmm. While they were part of these organizations, they must have spent only a few months. Uh, then they leave um, and uh, return back to normal life. And that happens. Uh, but again, we're not talking about, you know, big percentage, maybe 1%. Uh, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the vast majority end up either in jails, you know, when they return, because they still committed uh, com- uh, com- uh, committing terror attacks Um, or basically, you know, uh, spreading the, you know, go back and recruit and inspire more people Um, or, you know, basically, you know, uh, dying in the war zones. Um, So that's unfortunately, uh, you know, uh, if I answer the question, I would say, yes, I am, you know, one of the uh, exceptions, exceptions to the rule, yeah.
0: Uh, Thomas McLadrigan would like to know, what's the scariest situation that you've faced uh, while you're working undercover?
1: Well, um, I think one of the scariest and um, also, uh, you know, one of the most ironic uh, moments where when in... In 1999, I was, you know, basically into my first year as a spy inside al Qaeda, and I was back in Afghanistan, and I was in the headquarters uh, of al Qaeda in Kabul. And north of Kabul, just about 20 kilometers to the north is, uh, or 25 kilometers was was the front line, fighting against the Northern Alliance. The Northern Alliance were led by the famous, you know, uh, Afghan uh, Mujahideen commander, Ahmad Shah Mas'ud, legendary. So he was leading the anti-Taliban, you know, uh, forces in the north of the country, north of Kabul. Uh, Al-Qaeda were part of the Taliban, and of course, they were fighting against him. And so basically, it was this kind of uh, ebb and flow in the front line. Now, I wasn't very keen on serving on the front line, you know, because basically the front line is the front line. It is what it says on the tin. Mm -hmm. Um, But Al-Qaeda, you know, uh, noticing I'm a traveller. You know, I go and come, and they always put us to the test. Uh, you know, so I was then, you know, told what I was dreading, uh, that you are to go to the front line and report to Commander Abdul Hadi. Uh, you know, he's a commander from Iraq. Uh, he was the uh, military commander of al Qaeda, And to take your place in the front line for the next two weeks, this is your rotation. So of course the front line was hot at the time. It was winter, uh, late nineteen ninety nine, and so even though hot by mean like you know there was fighting. (laughs) Um, So I went there, and you know, and it was uh, one of the things is that like you know just four hours into my arrival, you know, um, I was asked to go on a patrol, uh, you know, in a pickup truck basically with a few others and. Our pickup patrol uh, base our our patrol was came under ambush uh just basically you know three kilometers you know uh, into the valley. We had to <clears throat> retreat and you know, the bullet hit the head of uh, the person next to me. Uh he you know ironically he was British Egyptian, uh 55-year-old. Um I liked him very much, but basically he, you know, the bullet hit his head and You know, I was holding, you know, his dead head, basically, like, I mean, you know, in my uh, hands, you know, and on my thigh, basically all the way until we, you know, we were speeding back into the front Mm -hmm. line. And what followed after that basically was an exchange of fire with mortar and uh, artillery and rockets. And during the exchange, I was just, you know, uh, told because I'm good with mortars. So I manned one of the mortars and I was, of course, firing. And it was scary because, of course, they can see from the lights and the smoke of the mortars, where the mortars are firing at them. So they are firing back and trying to guess where I am exactly, along with Mm -hmm. the other mortar teams. The scary thing here is that, and the ironic and the surreal and the the completely absurd situation is that these people, the Northern Alliance, are actually allies of the UK. And I'm Mm. a UK spy. So I'm a British spy, the people who are yeah. firing at me are, you know, protected, you know, uh, supported by the British. The weapons and the mortars they are firing at me, basically, are British supplied, you know, and I'm firing at them trying to kill them because if I don't kill them, they will kill me. Except basically they are, we are both on the same side. They don't know it, I don't know it, you know, basically. Mm-hmm. It's just uh, strange. And of course, uh, you know, one of the mortars landed, you know, a mere 15 meters away you know, uh, you know, and but at that time, the adrenaline take over, you just keep firing, you just keep firing. And I'm just thinking, strange, if I die, you know, basically as a British spy here, you know, in Afghanistan, it will be due to a shrapnel coming from a UK supplied mortar, you know, <laughs> to the UK allies firing at me here. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> Irony I mean, overload.
1: Can you think of anything more absurd?
0: <laughs>
1: when I went to bed that night, you know, I was shaken, of course, basically, you know, yeah. from everything because, you know, you know, death was lurking from above. You know, if you ask one of your friends who were in the military what it feels like to be at the receiving end of mortars, it's not so much basically once they exploded, they explode near you. The problem is the sound they make when they are landing. So you have to listen to the sound and the sound will tell you if they are close, nearby or above you. And so, you know, when I heard one, you know, basically, you know, because basically they were landing, you know, in greater numbers. So basically when I felt that, you know, or mistaken for one to be, uh, you know, above me, basically, I just dived down. And when I was diving down, basically, I hit one of the metal stands of the mortar basically that I was (laughs) with my head so (laughs) so yeah it it it, it was it it, you know yeah every time every time I remember that uh, you know time uh, I just think about how it was one of the most scariest yeah the scariest and the most absurd moment in my life Mm.
0: yeah I can imagine it's it's such an incredibly particular and um, unparalleled skill to have in terms of armed combat so please if i'm ever going paintballing remind i'm going to give you a call because you're you're going to be a champion like you'll
1: help my team get over the line and win it you know i would love to can you believe it i've never done it and i've been looking for people to play with so you just tell me i'm i'm gonna drive straight away to you and okay (laughs) no problem i'm gonna make
0: that i'm definitely gonna make that happen very soon (laughs) um i'm conscious of time i've got Two questions for you, um, just okay. before we kind of round up. So, one from uh, Momi Forbes, who's a massive fan of Conflicted, by the way, she's part of the Conflicted Facebook group. Uh, she basically has asked, "Are the how do middle how do Middle Eastern countries view China in the modern day? Are they as afraid of this emerging world power as the West so clearly is?"
1: Uh, no, they see China as an opportunity. Um, you know, you see basically that uh, the Middle East is behaving, you know, like, uh, let's say basically an attractive lady who for a long time had only one, uh, one man, you know, courting her, which is the West. Mm-hmm. But now suddenly there is another equally attractive man courting her too with lots of money, which is China. <laughs> yeah. So suddenly, basically, the Middle East is feeling, oh, we can't play this against, we can't play the Americans against the (laughs) Chinese and the Chinese against the Americans. We can say to the Americans, look, I mean, basically, if you don't invest, if you don't sell me this uh, weapon or this uh, technology or this uh, factory or this product, I'm going to buy it from the Chinese. So And they say the same thing to the Chinese. And so the idea is, no, you know, the Middle East is seeing China not so much basically as something negative. Um, but they see it basically as a means to an end that if we, we can use it to blackmail the West into giving us what we want and if the West doesn't give us what we want we're not mm-hmm. going to lose. We will still get it from China. That's yeah. you know how they see China at the moment because they know that the Chinese military cannot project itself in the Middle East not for another 30, 40 years. Mm-hmm. It just it literally cannot. Not many people know that the Chinese military is not a you know a, cannot have a, uh, a strategic power projection in faraway countries it's not there yet it will take mm-hmm. another generation at least
0: Mm, I suppose that's good to know. I'm a little bit concerned by China's rapid acceleration and expansion, but yeah, as you see, uh, military power doesn't always equate to the same as the financial might. Um, and especially, I think you've also sort of explicitly um, stated before that, no matter how rich or how influential China becomes in the global stage, that it's never going to be the real number one because as it stands, they are champion replicators and they're not yes. innovators. You know, they're stealing technology, they're stealing patents, they're stealing um, uh, information. Even I thought it was very interesting for anyone who hasn't listened to the the first episode that, that you and I recorded that the Chinese military program came as a result of the Taliban recovering a a missile that failed to detonate that um, America had fired, which is just mind-blowing stuff. Like, that is absolutely incredible. Indeed. Um, The the final question is from someone familiar to you, previous blethered guest, message-heard founder and good friend of yours, Jake Warren. Jake would like to know what your <laughs> wife thought of his, uh, his impersonation of you. <laughs>
1: uh, I mean, <laughs> uh, let's put it this way. <laughs> um, you know, if my wife sent a Tupperware with a meal inside, just beware of it. <laughs>
0: well, it will you burn heard. your
1: tongue through man it will be so yeah. spicy <laughs> Jake
0: you've been warned and they've, they've got previous you know so if you get food through the door just don't accept it dispose of it carefully <laughs> even as always thank you for being such such a good sport good humour uh, and great insight uh, and I'm sure everyone will enjoy it and I'll find a way to, to manipulate you and blackmail you into coming back on soon
1: <laughs> anytime, Sean, anytime.
0: And I'm just gonna go and Google your home address and see if someone turns <laughs> up at my door. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and uh, send them my best wishes <laughs> and my gratitude.
0: <laughs> Bleathered was written, recorded, and produced by Sean McDonald in association with the Big Light. Music and post-production by Brian McAlpine. And for more information, go to thebiglight.com.
1: From the Big Light Studio.